You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Genesis 35, which is the end of the Jacob cycle, that is not the end of Jacob in the book of Genesis. But after this, it will be primarily switching over to Joseph, his son. And so here we have this interesting passage at the end of our series on the Isaac and Jacob cycle, one in which the, the first part is all about God's great blessing, this reiteration of the blessings upon Jacob. But then the text ends in sorrow, the death of Rachel, the death of Isaac and Reuben and his dishonor. So as we come now to this text, let us hear from God's word. God said to Jacob, arise, go up into Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brothers. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob no longer. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will also give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, where they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had a hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Edar, 
While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we started this series in Genesis chapter 25, which speaks of the birth of Esau and Jacob, to Isaac, and then we continue to follow the exploits of Jacob as he was given the blessing, as he flees from Esau, as he goes to Haran, as he spends time with Laban, and then returns back to Canaan, finally meeting back up with Esau some 20 years later. And then we looked at last Sunday the story of Dinah and what happened in the city of Shechem, and now here. Jacob is commanded to leave once more and make his way back to Bethel. It's a way of, of bringing us back to the time when Jacob fled. He was in Bethel where God appeared to him and was there that it seemed to confirm to Jacob that God was to be with him. And Jacob then vows that if God brings him back, then God will be his God. He will tithe to him and he will worship him alone. And seems here that we get finally the, the full culmination of God who has promised Jacob, who has vowed God has fulfilled his promise, and Jacob now finally fulfills his vow, even if he needs maybe some prompting from the Lord to begin moving. And so looking at this this evening, it simply breaks into two sections here. There's the, the blessing that the Lord gives to Jacob, and then there's the sorrow that Jacob experiences. And it is interesting just the way the text puts them together. You think from a, a narrative standpoint, it might have been better to put the sorrows first and to end on this happy note of blessing. But rather, we have the Lord's blessing of Jacob, these great and mighty promises that have been given to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and now to Jacob again. The Lord promising that he would bless him and be with him. And that he will give him this great land and nations and kings will come from him. And it's in, in the midst of that that then Jacob experiences likely some of the greatest sorrow he would, be, would have experienced. The death of Rachel, the one whom he worked so many years for, dies in childbirth. And then his father, though he is full of days and old, nonetheless Jacob and Esau must bury him. And then in the midst of this, his eldest son does something to bring what seems to be dishonor upon the family. So he has, on the one hand, this great blessing of the Lord. He has, on the other, just the normal, if you will, effects of the fall upon the world. That Jacob is, is just living in between, living in between the full culmination of the Lord's blessing and living in the sorrows that take place in our everyday lives. I think as we go through this, we'll see this, this text in that way feels very modern. For we have the same 
blessings of the Lord. They're, they're now much more expanded and much fuller than Jacob could ever understand. And the Lord promises to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us, and that he will be our God. And he has shown that in the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet at the same time, we, fight, we face these sorrows. We face death. We face, face disaster. We face dishonor. We face all of these problems in this life while yet holding on to the fact that God has promised to bless us and to be with us. And you can see through Jacob's life how he holds on to that promise and he does so very imperfectly. And again, looking at the life of Jacob, as we now come to this conclusion in this part of the text, it just simply reminds us that Jacob is just, in many ways, an ordinary person. Given an extraordinary blessing, he is, in many ways, he has followed through on his vows, and he has also imperfectly acted throughout his life. But yet, throughout it all, he has held on to the Lord, and the Lord has held on to him. Well, as we come to this first section on blessing, we just simply see the way in which Jacob prepares his people. There's this great preparation in the first four verses. And then we see how the Lord protects his covenant people in verses 5 through 8. And because I just wanted another word that started with P, this presence of the Lord, the Lord appears to Jacob and is with him in verses 9 through 15. So God commands Jacob to leave Shechem. Uh, it's quite possible that after the previous instant, incident in Genesis 34, Jacob is concerned that the other Canaanites and the Perizzites, that they are greater than Jacob and that they will attack them as they go. And so Jacob quite possibly is sort of just sitting still. Things are safe right where he is. And the Lord comes to him and tells him to arise and go to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar. God had come to Jacob, and Jacob had vowed to him. In his vow, there were three things included. He acknowledged Yahweh as his God. He promised to set up a shrine, and he promised to pay tithes. And it seems here that God here is, is prompting him and helping him to remember the latter parts of his vows, those of setting up the shrine and tithing. But also you'll note that Jacob deals with the first part of that vow, acknowledging Yahweh as his God. In verse 2, Jacob sets about to his entire household. Uh, this would include his immediate household, his sons, his then servants, and then also the people from Shechem. So it would have been a large group at this point. And he comes to this really almost disparate-looking group and tells them that they are to put away their foreign gods. And it doesn't mean here that Jacob uh, is dabbling with polytheism, uh, as if he's worshiping Yahweh in front and worshiping idols in the back, but rather just this mixed multitude, this camp that he has come, that he was two camps. There just simply exists idolatry in here. And Jacob, as the leader, commands them to get rid of their idols and then to change their garments. You can see Jacob here is, is understanding simply what it means to come into the presence of the Lord, that they must put away their foreign gods, purify themselves, and change 
their garments, that they must be ready to come into the presence of the Lord. Jacob, who doesn't have the law of Moses, still grasps something of the Lord's holiness. And he understands that coming to meet with God and to worship God, that it requires the getting rid of the idols that are in his camp. And it requires the people to become cleansed as they come into the presence of a holy God. And if nothing else, Jacob is simply teaching this large group of people what it means to be followers of Yahweh and who it is that they're worshiping. Then he commands his people in verse 3, Let us arise and go, that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He gives this wonderful testimony to the people there of, well, why are we doing this? Why must we put away the household gods? Why must we cleanse ourselves? Well, Jacob simply answers, this is the true God. We are going now to worship the true and living God. We are going to worship the one who doesn't need idols, who isn't worshiped through things that man has made, but who is transcendent. He is the one who helps He is the one who cares. He is the one who has been with me all of these days. And so verse 4, the people obey. They give all of their idols and also their earrings. It's unclear of what these earrings are, but simply that somehow they're related to idolatry. Then they could be from the people of Shechem. But Jacob takes all of these things and then buries them under a tree near Shechem. And again, it's unclear as to why Jacob buries these. It's possible he just didn't have a way to either melt them down. How else do you get rid of them uh, as a nomadic tribe? And so he buries them and they move away from this area never to come back to them again. So now Jacob and his camp, they set off And Jacob's concern in chapter 34 was that the people of the land would come after and try to destroy them. But at the beginning in verse 5, the terror from God fell upon all the cities. Here Jacob is doing what would later happen to his people, the Israelites, later as they left Egypt. The terror from God comes upon the cities as Israel the nation goes into the promised land. Here, in the same way, the Lord is protecting Jacob, his people, Israel, as they go to where he has commanded. The Lord has commanded them to go, but also is providing protection for them. We we come to really think about this. The Lord has commanded them to go to Bethel. He is the all-powerful one. Well, what, what would be the outcome of this? It would be silly for God to command Jacob to go to Bethel if he was going to simply die on the way there. And so, of course, the Lord will also protect them. And so he protects them because he's protecting his his promise. He's protecting his seed. He's protecting his family. But also simply, he has promised it, and so it will come to pass. In verses 6 through 7, they speak of the arrival at Bethel again. And here we're, we're coming back full circle from when Jacob left his family. He arrived at Bethel and this great vision he had from the Lord. Here he arrives back at Bethel in verses 6 through 7. He calls the place El Bethel or God, God's house. For this is where God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. 
And interestingly, we have then verse 8, which is Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried there. This is one of those instances where if you just stop for a moment, you read this text quite quickly and pass over this, that we've actually never heard of this woman before. This is the first time she is mentioned. It does seem that when uh, Rebecca came, she had uh, servants with her, just like Rachel and Leah, but Deborah is never named, and yet she's named here. And the other confusing part is that she's not a part of Isaac's camp. She's a part of Jacob's camp. So how did she end up with Jacob, and then she passed, why is she written down and remembered, and why is the place where she is buried called the Oak of Weeping, or Alon Bakuth? It's just a fascinating little snippet there that's included. And certainly the question here, not to belabor it, is, well, why put this little statement in here? And one of the ways, I think, is that it's just the care for God's saints, this woman had united herself to Jacob's camp, the, the camp in which the seed, the blessing, would flow forth. And so we're remembered here that she had faith and she died. But I think also, secondarily, it's just simply that this happened. It's just an actual event that really happened and it is recorded to, again, remind us of just the truthfulness of Scripture, that Deborah was just a real person who really died and was remembered by Jacob and his clan. And then finally, God comes to Jacob uh, to bless him once more. And the blessing that he gives to Jacob is a reiteration of the blessing that he gave to Abraham, almost verbatim of Genesis 17. And it was there where God appeared to Abram and changed his name to Abraham and that he would make him a father of a multitude of nations, making him exceedingly fruitful and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant. This is from Genesis chapter 17 between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. You have many things bound up in this. Abram, now called Abraham, would be the father of many nations, that he would have an innumerable amount of descendants, not a nation, but nations. And also kings would come from him. He would be exceedingly fruitful. God would establish an everlasting covenant with him. And then it speaks about the way in which this covenant will move from generation to generation to generation. And we've already seen in the book of Genesis how this blessing and promise of this covenant moves from Abraham to Isaac, just as the Lord said earlier here in Genesis 17. And now in 35, it's confirmed yet again that this constant refrain this is also not the first time that the Lord has made these promises to Jacob and so we have these great promise of nations and kings and of land and God is confirming to Jacob once more that he is with him to bless him and to be with him and there it says God went up meaning that likely this was some uh, theophany, this is some manifestation, this is a, a vision that Jacob had here in some visible manifestation. The Lord was present there as he spoke to 
Jacob. And Jacob responds just as he had done last time when God came to him. He sets up a pillar, he he worships, he pours out a drink offering, and he reaffirms the change of name from Luz to Bethel, the house of El, the house of God. And so Jacob responds in worship. He fulfills the vow that he said he would fulfill. The Lord had fulfilled his promise, bringing him back here now as a a camp of, of such great magnitude. The Lord had been fulfilling his promises to Jacob and would continue to do that. And again, you could almost think that that the series ending on that point would be this wonderful, rich high note. The Lord has brought Jacob back, changed his name, blessed him and commanded him. And thus ends the life of Jacob. But that's not where it ends. We're then given at the last part of chapter 35, 16 through the end, three separate instances of things that are, are, are sorrowful to Jacob. There's Rachel's death, Reuben's dishonor, and Isaac's death. So you'll remember earlier in chapter 30 when you have the two wives engaged in this almost war of giving birth. Rachel finally has a son, Joseph, and she calls his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And so Joseph's name was itself a a prayer and a trust in the Lord that he would give another son. And here we see that prayer answered, though maybe not in the way Rachel would have wanted. And she dies in childbirth, but as her son is born, she names him Ben-Oni, which most likely means son of my sorrow. And Jacob, hearing this, changes his name immediately to Benjamin, son of the right hand. And likely Jacob here doesn't want Benjamin to carry this name throughout the rest of his life as as names seem to have this uh, great import upon them. That he wants him to be remembered as the son of the right hand, the son of power, not the son of sorrow. And so he renames him. And then they continue on their journey. And then you end in verse 22, the first part of it, where Reuben lays with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is another one of those strange verses that are inserted into the text. Causes you to pause and ask, why did was this included in what's happening in this section? It seems likely that Reuben here, after the death of Rachel, it almost begins to sound like a, a power play. You remember, may remember later with um, Absalom and David, Absalom does much the same thing. He lays with David's concubines as a way to seemingly to uh, assert power to gain the upper hand. It may also be that Bilhah, as Rachel's servant, here Reuben lays with her in order that she would not be considered a favorite, but his mother Leah would be. And so Reuben does this and brings dishonor and shame, but nothing else is mentioned here other than there's still friction, there's still problems with inside the family, a theme that will be coming up in even greater ways in the life of Joseph. 
But now after the birth of Benjamin, we have the full 12 sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, and Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob that were born to him. These would be the 12 tribes. And here at the end of this section, we finally have all 12 sons here. And Jacob comes to his father at Mamre. And there Isaac dies. He breathes his last and Esau and Jacob bury him. And now we get to the end of this section. Chapter 36 is a genealogy of Esau, and then we will pick up with Joseph after this. So this is a, a section, or a, if you will, a, a chapter close. And here we have in Jacob's life the death of Rachel. We have his son bringing dishonor and shame, and then his father's death. And as we stand back and think on the life of Jacob, just simply asking the question, is or was the Lord with Jacob? And the answer we see throughout his life is, of course he was. Of course the Lord was with him, blessing him, guiding him, keeping him, and protecting him. But that doesn't mean that Jacob never faced hardships, never faced the effects of his own sin or disobedience. It doesn't mean that he never suffered. We see that here where he mourns for Rachel as he has to deal with Reuben and as he buries his father. And this is just after the whole instance with Dinah and Simeon and Levi and the Shechemites. And so we see in the life of Jacob, one in which he was blessed, one in which clearly the Lord was with him, but that didn't preclude him from suffering. In many ways, then, we can move into the New Testament, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. Was the Father with Jesus? Well, supremely, yes. In a way that Jacob could never experience, the Lord Jesus was with the Father. He was beloved of the Father. He was blessed by the Father. He was given the Holy Spirit in superabundance. And yet Jesus' life was one in which he was called the man of sorrow. The one in which he lived a life in which he knew the very end. Jacob would never know the end until it came, much like us. Jesus knew the end. And he knew where he was going. He would even pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And yet he continues on knowing that this is his mission. This is the, the goal. This is the reason for him being born. He is truly the lamb led to the slaughter. But yet throughout Jesus' life, we can see that he was indeed beloved and blessed by the Lord. And after Jesus' resurrection, we see the apostles, those who knew Jesus and those whom the Holy Spirit comes upon. And we see more blessing. We see the way in which the Lord is with them, but we see also the way in which they continue to suffer. Though it seems as we move there that suffering also begins to be changed, doesn't it? Their suffering is a way in which they show forth. They rejoice in it because they feel they were counted worthy to do so. 
So really, as we come to the end of this section of Isaac and Jacob, we see simply a, a normal man, one loved of the Lord, one who experiences suffering, but one who experiences blessing. And Jacob's ultimate hope was just as his grandfather's was, for a city beyond what he could see, for a land that would never perish. His trust ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ that would be many, many, many years until these promises would be seen and they would come to fruition. But nonetheless, Jacob trusted the Lord was with him throughout all of these things. And that's what we see from beginning to end in the scriptures, that whatever we face, the sufferings and the trials, the difficulties, the death, all of these things that we face do not preclude the fact that God is with us. But rather, from Genesis to Revelation, we see in the midst of suffering, God is with us. And even so, using these times of suffering for our good, cannot make this up. <laughs> I was watching the video. There was a seagull at the window pecking. No, it's probably something. <laughs> well, that's apparently I, I was done. That is the first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we were small to begin with this evening. Well, let us then simply take hope that all the way back here in the beginning of the Bible, we see God in his presence and his blessing with his You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at Gloucester Pres, that's P-R-E-S dot co dot U-K.